Now, would you please stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word? This is Acts chapter 15, 4 through 18. And so, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who had belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order, and order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for telling us your story as it moves across the world, what you have been doing since eternity past. You even tell us what you're going to do into eternity future, and you show us this panorama of your salvation moving across the earth, and you also show us how we get to be a place in that. We are not, uh, our story is part of your bigger story, and, and that is... Lord, that is something wonderful because the commercialization that we are sold on a day-to-day basis is not enough to sustain us. We need something more. We need to know that there's something better happening past the next big thing. And the truth is that you are bringing in a whole new creation for us. And we see that story unfolding. We see that story unfolding here now at the the time of of the early church when our fathers were figuring this out for the first time, even though it had been plainly before them in the prophets from the very beginning, Lord, the mystery that the Gentiles would be included and part of Israel. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see uh, the beauty of this story, the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for us. We pray that you would help us to see how and why some of the Pharisees were so against this and also to show us where Uh, possibly in our own hearts, uh, we harbor some of the same feelings so that we might shed them, so that we might be good stewards of this gift that you have given us, Lord. 
So open our minds and our hearts, Lord. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In Anne Rice's uh, Vampire Chronicle series, there's the story of these vampires who have at great immoral cost gained immortality only to end up committing suicide because the world that they knew and loved at the time that they became vampires had changed so dramatically that they just couldn't stand it anymore. The culture around them that they knew and loved had changed and they were no longer comfortable in their own skin. And so there's these stories, these pictures of these vampires that had at great cost become eternal uh, voluntarily walking out into the sun and incinerating themselves because they just couldn't stand it. They couldn't take it anymore. There's something about the human heart that has a hard time with change, especially cultural change. We like to be comfortable. We like to have things the way we understand them. It makes us feel safe. I experienced kind of the same thing to a much, much smaller degree in the rock scene uh, in, my, in my youth and different rock bands I was in. The fads and the styles of music had often changed so fast and so uh, completely that there were guys that I knew, friends of mine, great musicians, talented people who ended up, their careers were over by their mid to late 20s because they just could not fathom wearing baggy pants, <laughs> And it was over for them. They just couldn't imagine that kind of culture where they would be asked to wear baggy pants. It was so much better in the old days. And then 10 years later, the guys who managed, you know, the new kids that came along wearing baggy pants, they just could not fathom wearing skinny jeans. (laughs) And so it goes over and over again. What was happening? The culture was changing. They They just could not get comfortable It was so weird to them, they just couldn't do it, and they ended up leaving their careers because of it and were washed up by late 20s. The culture around them changed, and they couldn't cope with it. In missions classes, in seminaries, they always warn us, they warn you about culture shock, this real thing, uh, becoming super disoriented because nothing is familiar. At first, you go to a new culture, it's exciting, you love it, you like learning these new things, but then one day you wake up and there's just nothing familiar around you and just something weird and disconcerting happens to people and they have to push, they have to push through that. It's like being stripped of everything that you've, every comfort that you've ever had, like a warm blanket on a cold morning and you're just stuck there. And if it's anything, if this is anything, it's a lot of things. One thing, one big thing that Acts, this chapter in Acts is about, it's a story of a people coming to grips with a big change. Uh, You know, what had been for a thousand years in Jerusalem had come to an end. Everything they understood about worship, everything they understood about the faith, everything that they understood about what the prophets had said was not coming to an end, but it was coming into a fulfillment that changed everything. And it was freaking them out. And they were scared. Even though the unison symphony of the prophets from old had forecast 
this even greater reality where one day Israel, the root of Israel, would bear forth fruit and cover the whole world when they began to get a clue that what God really meant was the whole world, they were freaking out. It was hard to deal with. And in this story, the gospel had just made the first big jump across the fire line from Jew to Gentile. And some of the brothers from Jerusalem, from the church in Jerusalem, believers, were trying to cling to what they had always known. And so here's the big warning for us. Here's the big warning for us in this passage. The big warning is that if we cling to culture, we can miss the beauty of the gospel and forget who we really are. If we cling to culture, we can miss the beauty of the gospel and forget who we really are. And so I'm going to work through this passage in three parts. The first part is clinging to culture, uh, what that looked like for them, what it looks like for us. Second, the beauty of the gospel, what we risk missing if we cling to what has always been. And third, remembering who we really are, that we are part of God's story that's changing and morphing and moving through the world. And we have the baton right now. And teaching us, we're going to look at how, what does that mean to have that baton and run well with it and hand it off to the next generation because that's what we're called to do. Amen? So we're going to look at those three things. Clinging to culture, the beauty of the gospel, remembering who we are. First, clinging to culture. Now look, whenever we talk in our circles, whenever we talk about clinging, of cult, clinging to culture, the usual suspects that we roll out onto the table are either um, churches that have capitulated or caved into cultural morality, and so they want to be part of culture so badly that they've given up important things of the faith, the morality or the, the Christian ethics that God has said, this is how you live life in honor of me and gratitude for the salvation I've given you. Uh, it gets to a point where there's one thing, there's contextualizing the gospel, contextualizing the faith, meaning making it understandable to our time and place, but there's a line that can be crossed when you run across that line and you're so desperate to be accepted by the culture that we start abandoning important foundational things of the Christian faith. Uh, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. There's also churches that are so concerned with being relevant to the culture that they just stop looking like churches altogether. And I know there's probably a lot of us in here who have sat in a Sunday morning worship service watching the rock band thinking, this isn't even as good as it was on Saturday night when I saw the same thing. We have to be the church. The church should be transcendent. The church should bring us into the presence of God. We can't lose the transcendence, but we also have to figure out how to make that make sense to people that we're trying to reach. And so usually when that clinging to culture boogeyman is brought out, we're taught, we talk about that, churches that are clinging to the culture surrounding us and refusing to let it go. But there's another suspect, one we don't talk about as much, that's just as, if not more, dangerous, and that is when we as a church cling to the culture of the church from the past and we're afraid or we refuse to let go of it. If you look in the history books, there are pictures. There's pictures of 18th, 19th century missions, right? Where there are pictures of, 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 of steamboats and barges carrying pipe organs upriver into Africa 
into Asian, and then, and then pictures of the missions where all, everybody there, the, the, the native people are all there dressed in Victorian bl- clothing up to the neck, exactly like Europeans, and the missionaries would come in, and as much as they were bringing the gospel, they were also bringing in everything about Western culture, and it never occurred to them that Western culture was not uh, a non-negotiable part of the gospel. They just couldn't imagine leaving it behind because it was so comfortable. It was something that they wanted so badly. They just brought it with them without even thinking about it. A lot of those, a lot of those missions failed. It wasn't until Hudson Taylor and the Inland Chinese Mission, the Inland China Mission, Hudson Taylor was a guy who abandoned all that, started, grew his beard out, started dressing in cultural Chinese dress, went way up river and just lived like a Chinese, like a, a Chinese person, uh, lived like the Chinese culture around him, and he took the gospel and the beauty of it, the substance of it, and put it into styles that everybody understood. And the Pharisee party, long before Western missionaries were steaming organs upriver into Africa, the Pharisee parties were suffering from the fear of culture shock in this passage. Listen, listen what happens. First, first they hear about the mass conversions of Gentiles, right? They came to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church, the apostles, the elders, they declared all that God had done with them, this wildfire conversion of Gentiles, where whole cities were becoming converted to the faith. You would think that would make you excited, right? If we said, if I came in today and I said, guess what, El Cajon believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, everybody would be like, yes! Right? No? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Whole cities, right? Coming to faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, here's their response. Listen to what they say. They say, first, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. And before that, Right before this, in verse 1 of the same chapter, they say this, filling it out. They say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. We've got to put those two together. That's what they're saying. They're saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, unless you keep all of the ceremonial law, this isn't just law, this isn't just Ten Commandments to them. This is cultural law, civic law, ceremonial law. Unless you keep all these things, you cannot be saved. Why would they say that? This is 50 AD, people. Think about that. The gospel has been preached for 18 years. These are elders in the church, and they don't seem to know what the gospel is. How could that be? We know what they know. Out of the gate in Acts chapter 2, Peter comes out and says, They say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, what? Be circumcised and follow the law of Moses? No, he didn't say that. He said, repent, meaning in that context, repent of relying on these dead works of the law for salvation and believe and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And what will happen? You will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, i.e. you will be saved. They knew that the whole city of Samaria was saved like that. They knew that Peter had gone 10 years before this to Cornelius and his family and the Holy Spirit dropped on them and they were saved. 
And Paul is a member of the Pharisee party. From the beginning, he's been teaching the law of Moses were shadows. They were pictures of what Jesus was going to be. And now he's here. Get away with that. Believe in this. Repent and believe in this. And yet here these guys are saying, no. Which means, which a scary thing means, that they knew better. They knew or they should have known, but they didn't. Why? Now, look, is big part of this the twisted human heart that wants to desperately hold on to keeping the law as a means of our salvation? Absolutely. It still happens today, <laughs> amazingly. 2,000 years after the fact, there are still people who believe that our keeping the law of Moses is how we're saved. But there's more to it than that. From what we've just read, um, they were afraid. They were comfortable. For a thousand years, things had been the same. They'd made a nice life for themselves in Jerusalem, and they didn't want to get it weird by letting all this, this different culture invade their space. And so they said, no, you have to be like Jews first. You have to be just like us. And then you can be saved. There's a story I just heard. I wish I could remember where it was. I'd love to give it credit. But it was a story of uh, a, pres- a Presbyterian church in the early 60s at the time of desegregation. And their elder board was voting on whether or not to let African Americans become members of their church. And they voted... To their credit, they voted, they looked at the text, they go, we have been wrong, we repent, and we are going to open our doors and allow African Americans to become members in our church. And one of the elders of that church, after that vote, had to go home and tell his very old, very white, very southern mother what had just happened. And so he went home and he said, Mom, we got the vote today. And she said, well, what happened? And he said, well, we voted in favor to, to allow African Americans to become members in our church. And her, his mother was obviously super upset. And he said, Mom, you have to think, what would Jesus do? And she said, I know what he would do, but he'd be wrong. Shocking? Yeah. You know, and what we all want to say is, oh, she must not be a Christian. And by saying that, what we're saying is, a Christian's heart could never be that corrupt in one area. Oh, yes, it can, girl. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Yes, we can be that corrupt. We can be that short-sighted. She was probably... a. Wonderful woman in many ways, but in that way, culturally, she couldn't and didn't want, she did not want to leave her comfort to make everyone included in the gospel that we've been given. You know? There's a real fear underlying all that, right? And we feel it too. I know that. 
There's a real fear. We like to think that we are the experts, that we are special, that we have the gospel, that we've got the best theology, that we know how to worship. And all of that makes us feel special. And in the dark part of our hearts, it makes us feel better than other people. It makes us feel better than the Catholics, the Baptists, the non-denominationalists, the whatever. It makes us afraid. We're afraid. If we're not special, if we're not special, then what's, what are we? What's to become of us? What's going to be special about us? We don't say that, but that's what we think. Here's the answer. Jesus is what is special about us. Jesus has always been what's special about us. It's never about what us. It's never about what we have or what we've done. The thing that is special about us is that we have the message and that we have the privilege of carrying the torch and showing forth the beauty of Jesus in this place, in this time, to these people. It's always been like that, and it always will be. And if we forget that, we can miss the gospel, and that's exactly what the Pharisees did. Second point. We don't want to miss the gospel. We want to see and understand the beauty of the gospel. Second part, the beauty of the gospel. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. I was reading a story earlier today about the, the wildfires that we just had over the summer, and it said that we, California, experienced a siege of wildfires, six massive fires, some of them the Thomas Fire, two, almost 250,000 acres burned. And one of the fires, the, a smaller one, but a scary one, was the Lilac Fire that just happened up in Fallbrook. There was a point in the Lilac Fire, it spread from nothing to 500 acres in 20 minutes, which means it, it, it was traveling, in the first 20 minutes, it was traveling a, a half an acre per minute. <laughs> I mean, going up. There was, I read another report that said at one point in the spread of the fire, it was moving an acre a minute. It was so fast. That's why, the, if you remember, the emergency evacuation notices went all the way down to Oceanside super fast because when the, the conditions were just right, the wind was hot, the wind was blowing towards the ocean, the tinder was dry, everything was perfect for a complete and total wildfire apocalypse to overtake North County. Everything about the conditions were just right. Now, fortunately, it didn't happen, right? But this story we're seeing here in this section of Acts, what these guys are dealing with is the fact that God had set the conditions just right in his perfect time to set off a wildfire of gospel conversion among the Gentiles uh, quite on accident by Paul and Barnabas, they had no idea what they were doing, but also quite providentially uh, by God when Paul and Barnabas went to this place called Pisidian Antioch and all of a sudden, without their really trying, the entire Gentile city believed and the mission to the Gentiles started to spread like wildfire across the world. And this 
passage is, is these men, the elders of the early church, it was beginning to dawn on. They were coming to grips with the fact, the amazing fact, that this is what the prophets had always said. In all of their stiff-neckedness and their stubbornness and their, and their cultural short-sightedness and comfort, they had always read the prophets in a certain way that, that made it look like it was only going to be Israel and Israel only. Yay, us. Boo them. God's going to come and kill you. And we're stoked. But that wasn't what it was at all. From the very beginning, all of the prophets have always said that at the right time, God was going to set the conditions just right and the wildfire was going to start to spread. And James, James at the end of this, you hear from Peter about the first Gentile conversion. We hear from James, uh, we hear from Barnabas and Paul about the wildfire and then we hear James step in and he sets him, it dawns on him and he says, brothers, this is what the prophets have always said. He sets them up. Before he even quotes the main prophecy from Amos 9, he starts setting them up with prophetic language, or at least Luke does in his recollection of it. He says that God has visited the Gentiles. That's the word always used for messianic visitation. This is God coming in Messiah and salvation, has visited the Gentiles. And then it says, to take from them, Gentiles, a people for his name. And he uses the word Laos, which is the word for covenant people. It's God's holy people. And he applies it to the Gentiles. So everybody's already freaked and shocked by that already. And then he goes into the Amos passage, which says, after this, I will return. That's Jesus returning and coming, or it's Jesus coming into the world, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. What does that mean? And the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Let me, let me decipher that. That's James, the just, Jesus' brother, the head of the Jerusalem church, with all the authority, all the apostolic authority, interpreting for us properly one of the oldest Old Testament prophecies saying that the, res- the restoration of the tent of David is what's happening right now. The Gentiles being brought in, Israel taking root, and the whole world being filled with fruit. Way bigger than they ever thought was possible. Which is what the prophets always, always said. I'm going to read this. This is, this is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament because it sums up the coming of the gospel in such a beautiful and and poetic way. It helps helps us to see the beauty of it. This was Isaiah, 700 years before the fact, and he's reading. This is what he says. Speaking of this same time, he says, Thus says the Lord, in the time of favor I have answered you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people It's talking about Jesus, giving Jesus as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear, and they shall feed along the ways, and all the bare heights shall be their pastures. They shall not hunger or thirst, 
Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. Psalm 23, woven into the text. And I will make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. And behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Cyrene. That's China. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and he will have compassion on his afflicted. That's us. That's us. We've come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south, and we've all been gathered in together as the the gospel and the messengers of the gospel have jumped culture to culture to culture and become uncomfortable and suffered affliction in doing so so that we can be here in this room worshiping the one and true God. And here, one thing even more amazing than that is the tent of David that he talks about here. Give me three minutes to theologically geek out, okay? Fair? It's three minutes, okay? He says, look at, this is what Amos says, I will, re- I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David, not the tent of meeting, not the tent of Moses, not the tabernacle, not the temple, the tent of David. What is the tent of David, you might ask me? If you look at first second, or if you look at first Chronicles 16, it tells us exactly what that was. The Ark of the Covenant had gone into captivity by the Philistines. David restored, brings the covenant back, or the Ark of the Covenant, God's holy presence, which would, which kills you if you treat it wrong because of his holiness. In the temple, there had to be a veil in front of it. Only the high priest could go into that presence once a year under very special circumstances because of the holiness of God. You could not go in the presence of the ark. Well, David brings the ark up to Jerusalem finally and he puts it on in the city of David, which is Mount Zion, not Mount Moriah, where the temple was built. Mount Zion, symbolically, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, has always talked, has always been symbolic of God's holy mountain, his restored heavens and earth. David brings the Ark of the Covenant up and then David, wearing an ephod, acting as king and priest, makes a single offering before the Ark of the Covenant and then he sets Asaph and the singers in front of it to worship the Lord in the praise of thanksgiving. And that's all they do. No veil. The tabernacle is still operating, but it's in Gibeon with Zadok the priest doing the animal sacrifices and whatnot, but it's not in Jerusalem, which means that from the time David ascended the throne in Jerusalem until the time the temple was built, the worship of Jerusalem was a stunning picture of new covenant worship where our king and our priest, Jesus, offered one sacrifice before the presence of God, and then everybody worshipped, and it was just praise and thanksgiving in front of the ark with no veil in the presence of God. (sighs) Do you know why James picked that passage to read? He's saying, that's what's happening now. Jesus, his death, his cross, 
has punctured through the veil, ripped it in two, so that we are now standing in God's presence in the holiness of Christ, covered by him. Worship, our worship is now the praise of thanksgiving, and, and, and the sacrifice is done. Singing, praising, rejoicing. The one sacrifice made for all time. And James is saying, he spells it out. He lays this prophecy out. They all start to get it. And he says, brothers, what's pictured here in the prophets is now in full effect. Praise God. And it never stopped. It continues to this day. We're still in it. We are part of that story. That's who we are. We're part of that worship. We are part of that celebration, making known and worshiping Jesus for what he's done and how he's brought that to us and how we are bringing that to other people. Last point, remembering who we really are. Who we are is this. We are part of an unbroken chain of God's wildfire moving across the globe. Now last week I told you about the the fluctuation in the kingdom, churches expanding and contracting. But that doesn't mean we can't trace a singular line. We cannot trace a visible trajectory of the wildfire and our part in it. Here it is. From 33 to 100 AD. We pick the story up here. This is the story of Acts and beyond Paul, Barnabas, Silas, they go to Asia Minor, they go to Greece, they go to Italy, they get all the way to Spain, bringing the gospel. They're starting to set up these tiny little outposts. After them, Simon, Aristobulus, Andrew, they go north. They make it to Britain and Poland. Then Bartholomew, Matthias, the Ethiopian eunuch, they go south to Ethiopia, take it into Africa, northern Africa. Thomas goes east into India and into China, just like Isaiah said he would 700 years before the fact. And then James, the son of Zebedee, goes west to Spain. Tiny outposts begin to emerge. From 100 to 400 AD, the church begins to surge east and south. The Middle East becomes pretty much the capital. Baghdad is a huge center for the church. It reaches all the way into India and China in strength. By 300 AD, there's 300 million Christians in the world. 10% of the world's population has been converted. The church begins to move west. By 378, Jerome can say all the nations resound with the death and resurrection of Christ. The known world, as far as they knew the world existed, they knew that missionaries had got there and at least started. 400 to 800, the barbarian invasions started to sweep into Europe and push everybody west. The Visigoths came to Rome in 410 AD and pushed everybody towards Spain. The Vandals came through Rome in 455 AD and pushed everybody into North Africa. The, the, mission, the, the, the monasteries of Europe began to spring up in the chaos that was the Western Empire. 600 to 700 AD, it spreads from Ireland to Britain to France. In 700 to 800 AD, goes north to Holland, to Germany, to Saxony. 800 to 1,000, it hits Scandinavia and Russia and all of Europe has been evangelized. 1517, the Protestant Reformation. 1607, English separatists land in Virginia River area. 
1706, an Irish clergyman, Francis McAmey, organizes the first American presbytery. 1769, Spanish Franciscan Junipero, Junipero Serra founds Mission San Diego de Alcala. In 1869, Presbyterians reach the West Coast, and First Presbyterian Church of San Diego holds their first worship service in a furniture store on 6th Avenue. In 1936, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church separates from the mainline denomination. In 1977, the Covenant of Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Chapel of Poway is formed, which then merged and morphed into New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido. And in January 31st, 2016, Resurrection Presbyterian Church holds its first worship service in the Chapel of First Pres. How about that? And here we are. But guess what? The story's not over. It's continuing. We've got the baton. (laughs) But think about this. Listen. Think about this. In that story, think about all the cultural barriers that had to be crossed in order for that to happen. Think about all the people that were just willing to get super uncomfortable, who were willing to let go their personal preferences and and just let it go in favor of seeing the gospel jump over another fire line and continue to spread. Those stories, some of those stories, the gospel spread because someone was captured as a slave and served in a galley and then ended up going back to their captors and giving them the gospel. That's how Ireland came to be. Slave girl or people, girls were Vikings came down and raided the, the monasteries in northern England and brought back slaves with them to Scandinavia and they, and they witnessed to their captors and Scandinavia. Just amazing stories like that of people who literally gave it all, literally sacrificed everything, not just their comfort, in order to see the gospel jump the next fire line. how hard that must have been for all of those frontline missionaries and church planners to navigate that balance between substance, the substance of the gospel of Christian worship, with the style of that time, place, and people that they found themselves in. Now we don't, can't, we cannot, cannot give up the substance. We can't give up the substance of our faith. That we are not saved by works. We are saved solely by grace of God through Jesus Christ by faith in his work, we look outside of ourselves and our own work and we place all our faith in what he has completed for us at the cross. We can't compromise that, but we have to figure out how to make it understandable. We can't compromise our worship. The New Testament says there are certain things that are God has given us to worship him that are pleasing to him and it's not safe to go outside those boundaries and make up our own stuff. That's what the Egyptians did, or the Israelites did with the golden calf. They built a golden calf, called it Yahweh, and said, we are worshiping the God who delivered us from from, from Egypt. It's scary. It happens really fast. We have to hold on to the forms that God has given us. But we have to figure out how to make those forms culturally legible so that people can understand them. We understand that when we worship God, this is not a... Alert. This is not an intellectual exercise. God speaks to us and we respond to him. We can't let go of that. 
But we can do it in a way that's beautiful. It makes people understand, wow, we're not just going to a lecture. We're going into the presence of the holy God who loves us. And we have to center everything on Jesus. Our liturgy can't reflect the cultural styles of the world. It has to reflect the story of, or has to reflect the story of the Bible, not the story of the world. But we can do that in a style and in a way that is understandable and beautiful. So here, listen, hard question. If we were planning a church, let's say we got together as a, as a, as a, as a group before we planted and we said to ourselves, we're going to plant a church in San Diego, and what we're going to do is plant a church with all the cultural dynamics of a 12th century Lebanese church. What do you think? Would it fly? Probably not. And yet some people think that we should plant a church that has all the cultural dynamics of a 17th century Scottish church. Or some people think that we should plant a church that has all the cultural dynamics of a 19th century Southern American church. Is that smart? No. It is not being good stewards of the gift that we have. And then there, what if we decided to plant a church into a 1970s Jesus movement culture? It's not just us. We can't do that either. We're not there anymore. We have to figure out how to do it here and now. And not because we're not totally sold out on Reformed Orthodoxy, but because we are. We just realize this is not a club. We don't get to be comfortable. We don't get to say to ourselves, we've got a good thing going here in Jerusalem. You want to become just like us? No, we can't do that. We have to become like the people we want to reach so that they can have the benefit of all the beauty that we've been given as stewards of the gift of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Oh Lord, our God, we don't often do this well, but we want to. Lord, outside these walls, there are hundreds of thousands of people that do not believe in you. There have been a hundred thousand clever arguments made convincing them that the gospel is not true. And you have given us the difficult mission of figuring out how to do that, Lord. So we pray. We pray that you would... Strengthen us that we would be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable so that visitors and others from different cultural backgrounds would feel comfortable here with us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to make it so before they even come. We pray that you would help us to hold fast and to maintain and to guard the tradition that we have received from the apostles, but to not let it be turned into traditionalism of our own cultural preferences of yesteryear. Help us, Lord, not to seek safety in some imagined nostalgia when everything was good because nothing was ever good. It's going to be good, and we look forward to that when you return. But in the meantime, Lord, help us 
Help us to sacrifice the things that we might be comfortable with in the favor of seeing the gospel reach a wider group of people, Lord. We pray that you would help us to show the people of San Diego the beauty of the historic Christian faith in ways that they can understand through the power of your spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.